You're listening to the Mentors for Military podcast with your hosts, Robert Gowan, Rudy Lindsay, Mike Pritz, and Kat Kalin. So I thought a great topic tonight will actually be combat situational awareness or just situational awareness in general. And when I started looking at, you know, situational awareness, I took some notes down. Basically, the description from a combat situational awareness is so recognizing and responding to events around you and the ability to assess the risk in real time are critical to survival on the battlefield. So that's kind of combat situational awareness. In a nutshell, that skill set is uh, situational awareness. There was a Dr. Micah Inslee. Uh, she was an engineer and former chief scientist of the U.S. Air Force who wrote like over 200 scientific articles and, and reports on situational awareness. She created a model <clears throat> where it kind of gave three levels. Mike, I don't know if you've ever heard of this. Perception, comprehension, and projection. No, I haven't. So in perception, she basically said it's kind of the simple recognition of relevant elements in the environment around you. The comprehension is understanding how level one, which is perception, will impact the individual goals and objectives. Level three is projection, and that's the ability to project the future actions of the elements in the environment, including extrapolating the info that was in uh, perception and comprehension and moving that forward in time to determine how it will affect future states. So if you think about it as a uh, person in combat, they're quickly having to size up the situation, measure the risk, assess the risk real time, and then determine their next move. I'm glad you you wrapped that back up into to combat because I, I didn't see how perception, comprehension, and projection were, were going to there. Uh, to me, that sounds like, I mean, more of a, of a, a way to, to react to any type of adversity or situation that you're, that you're looking at, but not necessarily life-threatening. I, I guess from a, you said she's a doctor, so obviously she's an academic or intellectual. She, she's thinking of this in, in things that, you know, uh, operators do on a daily basis when exposed to a threat simply because they're they're reacting to the training that they've had um, and usually are conditioned to that that kind of thing. And, and I just to I, this makes me think of a conversation I had when I worked at a special forces branch several years ago at a human resources command. And uh, the, the 75th Ranger Regiment, Illinois, worked with me. And at the time, and Rod, you may appreciate this because they um they were trying to force us into the the Six Sigma training. Oh, really? And yeah, and, and I, I'm like, I started looking at all of this stuff, and and you know, and and he and I were talking, and and the Six Sigma training to me, as I was looking at it as an outsider, I, I never I never went through it. Right. Uh, it really is a it's a decision making process. It's, yep. a, it's a way to to go through, and and I think you know support a decision. So that there isn't any one sole responsibility, um, and I'm not trying to pass the buck and say it's a bad plan. I'm just no. A lot of decision making processes are like that, where it's collective. Right? Well, you, a, ma- a matrix helps support your decision. Right. It, that's exactly it. You want to as a as as a decision maker or a leader, you want to have enough information where you can make an educated decision. Part of Six Sigma, obvious, uh, honestly, is evaluating the data. Because data, especially today, is collected. And whether it's data in terms of 
now through systems and automation and everything else, where it's just data in terms of information you're getting on the battlefield and reports and stuff like that. But you assess that data in such a way that you allow it to speak to you and give you enough information that you can make a decision. And then you try to place controls in place so that it doesn't happen again. Because if essentially in Six Sigma, you're actually trying to fix something that's broken or you're trying to create something new that doesn't exist today. So I, I think there is you know, some parallel there in terms of <clears throat> wanting to get enough information where you can make a decision. Right. So uh, much more eloquent uh, discussion of Six Sigma <laughs> than I could give it. Thank you. Uh, back, back to my conversation with the 75th Ranger Regiment, LNO, is I'm used to making a decision kind of in the heat of battle, on the spot, right? right? As bullets are pinging on the building around my head, I don't have time to consult a team. I don't have time to, to worry about perception, comprehension, and projection. Uh, I'm relying on battle drills. I'm relying on a lot of indoctrinated training and things that I've done. And we try to set these scenarios up so that I'm actively pursuing this type of education uh, through sustainment training, permission training, things like that. So when when the bullets are flying, it simply becomes a reactive contact drill, right? And and it, it, it's uh, the things that leaders do and the things that, that individual soldiers do when they react to contact, um, we train on that. And I, I think that from a, a combat situational awareness, um, when in a firefight situation, uh, it's exactly what you, you initially said, responding to events and the ability to assess risk. So that's what individuals in contact do. That's what leaders in contact do for their subordinates is they respond to the indicators of enemy strength. Those are the, the events that you're talking about. Somebody's shooting at me. I've got to identify what shooting, where's it shooting, um, how many people are shooting, are there machine guns present? Because that tells me the size of the element that's out there. Is there artillery mortars or, or maybe an armored element present? And based on those things, I report that information up higher. And then as the information gets higher, the leader has the, the information he needs, back to your Six Sigma, to, <laughs> um, to make a decision on whether or not to uh, attack or break contact. So from from a, a very, very finite, you know, look at that in you know, uh, in a firefight or, or in a reactive contact scenario, I, I think your initial definition is exactly what we do um, broken down under, you know, battle drill 1A reactive contact. Well, and just to, um, to add to that, which was very thorough, I would pick out a, a bunch of little things. And for me, it's like looking at it as on an individual perspective, like you said, you're so indoctrinated with this training ever since you go through basic training, you know, they want to teach you how to be a warrior and how, and I, how to react to certain situations. And I think with these, the more tier one, tier two level units, the excessive training after deployments to constantly be on your toes so you don't get complacent with when you are in that life, um, life or death situation. But one thing that kind of stood out to me with that, Mike, when you were talking how you're constantly thinking of the outside factors of, is that a machine gun? Do I need to call on for fire for this? Um, where's my team? You know looking at all these different angles that it's just, you know, it's, it's second nature. You don't think, you don't have to think otherwise. It just comes to you. But one thing that kind of stood out to me, especially for, um, you know, situational awareness is you want to prepare so much until you are in this situation and you'll never know. I've always heard these things about, you'll never know how you feel or how, how you react until you're there. And one of the things I remember when I was going through, the whole CSC course and probably only one of the beneficial things that I did since I was one of the 
pilot program. I'm just going to put in there. Since then, it has developed into a much better program, but I was pretty much the first one, and it was garbage, and that's normally how it works. But they put us through that SOSEP training, and that was such an individualistic idea of how you were to put your body and your mind when you were faced with those type of situations. And a lot of the things, like just to bring it all back together, is that you're hoping that you're so sharp on your battle drills that you can, if you need to take that second second to be like, okay, I need to head to toe, evaluate myself so that I am not going to be, you know, a burden on the, the guy next to me. And uh, I was just looking at these things. And one of the things that kind of pointed out to me was always trust your gut. And a lot of people forget that when it comes to, you may be so indoctrinated with this training, but even your gut instinct could always tell you otherwise on certain things. So looking at it as a, a training and a, as a team thing where you're, it's like baseball or football, you know, or wrestling or whatever sports, you can just, you know that that guy's going to be there. You know that this is going to be where it's supposed to be. But um, being able to identify your own triggers definitely helps when you are in a certain type of situation or in a detrimental situation like you guys put out as a battle or war, a war, get a firefight, <laughs> as you say. You know, when you were mentioning earlier the Six Sigma piece of it, actually that ties kind of into some of the things that I was going to relate into not just the combat situational awareness, but how it relates to the business world. I didn't really think of Six Sigma, but I did think about how important it is for an individual leader to be able to evaluate and understand the processes or interpret the processes of a business. And whether that's uh, from an operational standpoint or the mechanisms that's triggering uh, revenue or uh, keeping costs down and those types of things, knowing the marketplace and the trends and forecasts and the opportunities for growth. So you're able to look outward as well as inward. So you're looking at um, organic growth and inorganic growth and as well as looking at um, things internally that may be weaknesses within your organization that you need to evaluate. And, and you're also knowing your audience. And I think that's a big thing too. So when I think of situational awareness, sometimes you can apply that to the the private sector that maybe you're about ready to walk into a meeting or you're about ready to walk into a situation where you're going to have to provide an overview or training or something of that nature. And um, situational awareness in that sense is knowing who you're about to talk to, what are the expectations and ensuring you don't have a career limiting moment. So one of those <laughs> opportunities where you kind of stick your foot in your mouth. Um, so I think there's a lot of you know, parallels are a lot of things that apply in situational awareness within the business place as much as how you address it in the combat uh, awareness as well. I, I th I'm glad you rounded this out to the business world because all of my notes in the 22 seconds that I was making notes prior to the phone call beginning <laughs> here, Robert, um, I, this is what I, I didn't, I didn't focus on combat at all. Um, I, I, when I think SA, I, I think, uh, from an SF guy perspective, know your operational environment. Yeah. And that's 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 what we put a lot of effort into. So when we train um, SF operators to go forward and go to other countries and train our partner nation forces and interact with their, you know, uh, agencies and, and higher level political officials, officials, man, what, the things that we focus on are really culture, language, religion, uh, the world region or the geography and the border regions that influence that geography and and maybe some of the the politics that that are happening inside of that country. I really didn't focus on the combat aspect. I, I understand how it works with situational awareness, um, but but I, I when you said that to me, uh, what we would talk about tonight, 
are really focused on the soft perspective for situational awareness and and where we apply that. Guys are very, very good at this um, when we send them into our partner nation forces. Uh, very seldomly do we have a guy that goes in and, and really will mess that one up. Uh, so where where do they mess it up? They mess it up working out with, with the rest of the Army. Um, we, we, we pride ourselves on going into really um, difficult, diverse areas and and ignoring some of those things that are inherently dangerous to us or inherently foreign to us based on our own situational awareness. We're, we're, we're comfortable uh, being uncomfortable in, a, in, a, in, that, in that cultural environment. Uh, what we're not doing that is when we feel we don't have to. So when you, you, you go in to talk to a brigade commander or higher in, in his, in his uh, culture, in his language, in his regional environment, in his battle space, Right. And, 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 and worrying about the influences on the outside of his battle space, we tend to be barrel chested freedom fighters and we know all the answers instead of going in and, and being humble like we are with our partners and trying to kind of massage that. Uh, and that's what I thought of when you were talking about the business world, because, again, I, I think soft guys are great at moving into these types of business relations, because if you can if you can look at a foreign country and operate out, you know, inside of their government, inside of their interagencies and their military, inside of a very uh, diverse culture that's different than your own upbringing, you should be able to find the same seams inside of a business culture and understand a business language Absolutely. and understand the, the, the marketplace or those sector influences that you were talking about before. And those are the places that once you understand them, you can probably find that you can, you can really help a business and make a name for yourself in and exploiting some of those. I think this, just to add, um, when you're talking how you're going into a situation and a lot of the SF uh, operators, rangers, they go in and they're super barrel chested, their testosterone is flowing. This this just completely put a light bulb up for me is especially with the whole integration of females in combat. It's the exact same situation. You know, I've seen all over social media nowadays is all these women are coming out like thumping their chest, you know? And that is not the way that you are going to appeal in or to integrate or assimilate, as some people would like to say, into these units on, on wanting to make uh, yourself actually be a part of the team. And I think that's so important that you have to be able to walk into a scenario, whether it's with and uh, you're transitioning from Brigadier General so-and-so, and now you're going in for a manager's position in whatever business, you know, you have to be able to put down all of those stars and all of those accomplishments and definitely look at your surroundings and feel people out. And just the same as women going into uh, an all male environment, you can't go in there thumping your chest or showing them how many pushups you can do or how much faster you can run than them. You have to go in there with the right mindset and the right knowledge, I would say of what you're getting into, because if you want to have a positive influence and you actually want to make a difference, you need to know who is going to be on your right and left. Mike, think about what you were talking about here at the beginning of the podcast, you know, before we actually started taping about your situation where you were at the, the Tillman Scholar, um, you know, review. And and during that time frame, you were you were about ready to go up and, and give this speech to these, you know, individuals who are, are very knowledgeable and have PhDs or are on their way to getting those and very smart and intelligent people. And you were going to talk about theory and the whole bit. And, and then you realized your audience. You realize yeah, I changed everything. Yeah. I, you know, again, I'm when when I'm in a group of Tillman scholars, I am the dumbest guy in the room. No question <laughs> about it. Um and, and I, 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 doubt I, that. I said it I said it earlier, lawyers, doctors, scientists, 
brilliant people. I, I you know, I believe that, you know, we're going to have a Tillman scholar that's going to cure cancer. There's going to be a Tillman scholar who, be, uh, Tillman scholar who will be the president of the United States one of these days. Um, this is what Rhodes scholars were of the the 70s and 80s. I, I believe that's the quality of people. And here I am, a high school teacher and football coach, and and there are four teachers uh, of of that I know uh, in in, Til- in the Tillman scholars, and they're all fantastic people. And the the three are way smarter than me. Um, and I and I and I was asked to come and talk about my graduate research that they helped pay for. And I just defended my research at Colorado College the week before, so I thought I would go in there and and that's what I would do. And I'm, I was sitting in a hotel thinking about it. And about an hour beforehand, I said to myself, "Man, nobody wants to hear Ed Theory. Nobody wants to hear what I have to say about teaching high school kids." And um, and I just started scratching some notes out on a on a piece of paper. Actually, I've got it here because it was in my card from an, Amanda Tillman. So that's that that's my my notes from from what I was going to talk about. Uh, but essentially, what I talked about was how we teach people to do CQB, right? How we teach uh, soldiers to do small unit tactics, how we teach combatives. Uh, and, and if I tell you that I'm a Green Beret um, and I tell you I'm going to run a class on CQB, I'm going to teach, I'm going to put a, a unit through CQB. You get a picture of, of what I'm going to do. You probably picture guys kitted up, bearded. Uh, either baseball caps or helmets on, depending on the scenario, full kit, nods on their face, rifles up, probably porcupined out, uh, all kinds of accoutrement on those rifles. Uh, you can picture them going into a room, uh, clearing their points of domination, clearing sectors of fire, uh, and and we doing that over and over and over again. Um, and then I tell you that I'm a high school history teacher. And you probably get a similar picture, although not as cool. Uh, based on what you experienced in high school. And that picture probably looks like you're sitting at a desk, you're filling out some type of a worksheet. There's some boring guy talking in front of the class to you. If it's a geography geography class, it's it's common that, that people are coloring uh, states and countries uh, for, for even graduate studies in geography. Some, some people still do that. And I wow. tell these guys a story. And and again, it's over. I'm talking about Chicago Ridge and everything. I I didn't I didn't tell you that part. I'll get that part in a second. Um, and I, but I, I basically said, you know, that's what you think of when you teach. And and, and I, I asked them a question. I said, what if we taught our soft operators that way? What if the 75th Ranger Regiment, Special Forces, and, and the National Mission Forces were taught by sitting at a desk and coloring their points of domination instead of kidding up and walking in them and then running them, going dry fire, blank fire, and then live fire going simunitions against a live force. What if they did it the way we're teaching, you know, really our nation's treasure, our, our future leaders. And, um, and then I put a picture of Chicago Ridge up behind me and Chicago Ridge is just outside of Leadville, Colorado. And I, I said, this is where I learned everything I've learned about training green berets and teaching kids. And, um, and I was, I, there's only, you know, a couple of ways, three ways to get to the top of Chicago Ridge. One way is to get up there by helicopter uh, one's to go by snowcat, one's to put skins on your skis and walk to the top. And I've been up there all three ways. Um, and admittedly, as you're skiing down this and you don't have a high level of skill, um, the, 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 the level of challenges outweighs your level of skill and, and the individual doing it, which was me. When I learned to ski, I wasn't very good. I experienced a lot of anxiety. I looked like a sugar cookie when I got to the bottom. I was covered in so much snow. <laughs> and then there are times years later when my level of skill is, is way up here. And the conditions and the terrain and the environment all kind of match up. And I can ski it effortlessly. 
So when my level of skill is very high and the level of challenge is equal to that, man, I'm in a state of flow that that really uh, I feel like I, I can do no wrong. And and I I use that story to tell people that's what I'm trying to get kids to experience in the classroom, right? I want to get the kids to, and it may not be my subject, but to find something where they want to challenge themselves at the level just beyond where they're comfortable and through that experience growth. Now that's all education theory without talking about education. Yeah, theory. totally. Um, so that, I mean, that, in essence, I, I got to talk for five or six minutes and, and I would like to one day put that together into a nice package and give a Ted talk. Yeah. Uh, but I think got to write a book first and probably <laughs> more research and my, my beard needs to go completely white. And, yeah. Yeah. No, no, you're on, you're on a podcast. You're already going to get well-known uh, just based off of that. So, <laughs> so, but you're no John Snow. Just so uh, we're very clear. <laughs> no way. I'm not near as good looking. Beth yeah. That uh, so, I mean, oh. <laughs> I think that was a great way of describing, too, though, how important it is when you're teaching or understanding situational awareness that what the emphasis, where the emphasis should be placed and what you're actually trying to gain out of it. And in this case, it's trying to understand, again, some of those pieces that even though Dr. Uh, Inslee put it as perception, comprehension, and projection, it's really about recognizing your threats or recognizing the situation, understanding what will work best and what are the impacts and risk of doing whatever action you're going to take. And then, you know, actually putting that out into a future scape to understand, okay, if I were to do these types of actions, um, this, this is eventually what's going to happen. And, you know, I need to plan for these events or do something as my next move. So I think what you just described it follows that exact same pattern. You know, how you should teach. You, you have to size up the situation. You have to understand the audience that you're getting ready to go into. You have to then understand what the risks are in, in doing what you were, uh, the way you're going to teach and the way you're going to instruct these kids uh, to learn geography or history in a different manner. And then understanding, okay, if I do these things, what are my next moves then? Uh, and, and, and put that into place. So combat situational awareness applies so well to in a combat battlefield situation in the business community teaching high school whatever it is that you're wanting to do i think it applies and i think what's great about this too is that these steps everything that we've been describing I mean, from combat to teaching students is that you can if, if if you make it a habit it will make your life a million times easier it will make going into situations that may stress you out a bit or make you uncomfortable a lot more easier because you can go through the steps in your head. You can prepare yourself and you can do these with everyday life to make it a habit. You know, that's why they, they're constantly drilling you when you're in the military. Like you need to know these battle drills because you will be put into a situation where you might lose your life. And it's like, Hey, I can use these same steps when returning from deployment, when transitioning into civilian career, when teaching students, when trying to, I mean, a lot of us that come back with some mental disorders, this, these are great steps that you can take to just get out and do things to help to help yourself. So, I mean, situational awareness, if you make it a habit, it could help you with a lot of different things. I think a lot of what it provides, at least for those of us that have been in the military and those that are still serving in the military, is structure. So you, you've got some, some type of structure. And initially, we talked about it with battle drills, battle drills are a structure on how to react to contact, right? And then, and then it guides your decisions for, for what you do based on the threat. And in the Six Sigma example you gave, you've got a structure of a process that you're going to go through to evaluate systems, to gather data, 
and to help you make a decision to make some sort of of, of improvement for the organization. And, and I think that that's the same thing we we kind of we kind of described with with my example and and with the example of perception, comprehension, projection. These are all structures that 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 people will use to provide some type of guidance um, to remain aware situation. If you go out there and you start Googling situational awareness, it's amazing the types of things that you'll find. I mean, you'll find stuff on, of course, obviously, situational awareness as it relates to threats in your environment as you're walking through your communities or through towns or whatever. And it could be how to react to um, an active shooter situation or those types of things. But even goes further than that. You'll find um, clinical aspects of this, whether it's nurse case management or, or response management or... Um, like the guys we just had on with KCSL uh, on the uh, the most recent episode that we had, where they were talking about you know reacting and everything slowing down, and they understand how to um, triage the situation, help the patient identify you know what steps are going to happen, uh, what do they have to be concerned about, or you know if there's a blood loss or something of that nature, and then of course actually performing the actions. But you'll find situational awareness in exercises, in safety, in aviation, in the workplace. There's just so many um, different types of situational awareness out there and how it's applied. But it's still rooted in the same fundamentals that we were talking about. You can give examples of the same the same types of things that we're talking about. I rambled for probably too many minutes on that <laughs> silly talk I gave. Actually, I was a uh, that was great. Honestly, it was definitely relatable. I, they gave me five minutes and they offered one minute for questions. And then they wouldn't, they didn't stop letting people ask me questions. Yeah. People wanted examples. So I, I threw example slides up and I showed them how some of the different simulations that I've run and, and what the kids thought of them. And I mean, it was pointed questions. How are you doing this? How are you doing that? And I'm like, maybe it's because it's a topic that everybody can understand. And when you're talking about mitochondrial DNA and injecting proteins into a certain part, of, nobody in the room can understand that except the researcher. In concept, the doctor is also, it's great. That's great. It's fantastic. I understand the research. I can look at the data, see where he's going. Um, but as far as understanding the process of what they were doing, I didn't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a doctor. But I think with us, everybody has kids. So they kind of understand it. We've all been to high school. So those types of questions were relatable. And I think, again, instead of covering research data and theory, I talked about some kinds of things that everybody in the room being former military can relate to. You're starting these kids off in their, like their youth, you know, when their their brains are still developing, they're impressionable. Like, I mean, these are the people that are going to be sitting with you at the next Tillman conference, you know, like 10 years down the road being like, Oh yeah, days. you're the one that inspired me to go and be, you know what I mean? And be this because you're giving them hands on. Like now, have you seen just with your teaching methods and like how you want to package this together, like you were saying, like have the students been more like pers- like wanting to learn instead of just like so, a, so bringing their what'll happen in, is I'll, you know? I'll run a simulation and and I I mean one, one example is I, I I teach a Vietnam War through a game of tug of war, um and I, I set up both sides to be equal but uneven. I set up so that only the une- the, the the weaker side can win. I have injects and rule changes that make it so the team. That is the USA, which is made up of all athletes and men um, that can't win. Uh, and then there's all kinds of things. that go. And the kids understand it. We'll have a quick lesson beforehand. The kids understand what these injects are doing. And ultimately, they're outside playing tug of war. So 
instead of sitting in the classroom and having the same conversation, we go outside, we play tug of war, they all laugh, but ultimately, you know, initially some kids don't want to play. They want to sit down, right? Because they're, they're either, they're not engaging or they're a little afraid. And as you see everything going on, all the kids want to be on a rope. And, and once all kids are on a rope and you're playing and they're learning by doing and not even knowing it because the conversation that follows, well, they understand when I have two of the big football players not pull on the rope. They, and, and then we identify them as being traders. They understand those are VC infiltrators. Um, you know, and, and it's, it's, it takes a lot of effort to try to teach all your lessons that way. I wouldn't expect anybody to do that, but it, it's, um, yeah, you know, a couple of days after you do something like that, kids come in and they say, Hey, you know, when, when are we going to do another one of those simulations? And, uh, which really motivates me to try to figure out how to do more and more of them. And I really didn't click, you know, this didn't start out to be my, my graduate research topic at all. Uh, when I was doing my student teaching early in the year, I, I came across a simulation and modified it to make it work for my classroom with older kids on the Great Depression. And um, I ran this simulation. The class time flew by. Kids had a great time. They argued about things that people were arguing. I mean, I couldn't have structured it to have happened the way it did if I'd have tried to. But by by just letting letting them go in each of the classes I ran that simulation in, they had the same arguments that married couples had in the 1920s, um, the, the same problems with money and, and losing her home caused the same stresses in the classroom. And, uh, and I said, hey, this is something that, that could work if you could figure out how to do it all the time. And the kids would, you know, the next day you come in, you revisit it, you talk about it. And ultimately they learn all of these complex topics and things that happened during a time period that if they read in a book, they might remember one or two of them. But when it happened to them, th there's a personal connection. They retain it. Yeah, they retain that information. Well, think yeah, about so, it. So think about the military leader, Mike, and what you're describing there. I mean, the, the military leader that doesn't go out there and actually do the types of things that you're talking about, get their people out in the woods or get their people out there yeah. and actually engage doing something and, and not the monotonous, you know, stuff that they, they have to do because it's on the training schedule. And, yep. you know, it, it actually think out of the box in types of training that's so valuable. I mean, I had an NCO that did that with us. And I mean, one day um, he basically told us, you know, we're, we're going to go out there. We're going to figure out how you're going to survive, you know, with what you have on your pocket, you know, in your pockets right now. And it was about trying to understand that if you're not preparing properly, it won't help prepare you in the future. It, it was those types of lessons that he, he left with me and the types of training and things that he did as a leader. I mean, though. How many leaders do we have today in the military that go by the damn training schedule and they don't put anything to it? It's just, yeah. it's almost like death by PowerPoint, even though you're not watching a PowerPoint. Yep. It's the same way with all the mandatory training that takes up so yeah. much time with guys' deployment and redeployment schedules and everything. I mean, it's not, it's not effective. We've proven, I mean, people much smarter than me, you know, human, you know, psychologists, Ed Theory has proven that sitting in front of a PowerPoint slide or slow, uh, presentation for more than 10 to 12 minutes uh, is is counterproductive. Uh, generally, your age plus no more than two minutes, but not going over 18. So 20 minutes max sitting in front of any kind of presentation without doing something interactive or collaborating. Uh, but yet that's exactly what we do with mandatory training online, with mandatory stuff, uh, PowerPoints shows that we do with, with guys in the military. Um, and, and honestly, this was my big problem years ago in the mid 80s and, and early 90s 
with the, the whole sergeant's time training that the yeah. army went to this model on Thursdays, at least in the installation I was on, um, where you had to have these pre kind of packaged yep. lessons and, and you had to have your learning objectives and standards and all this stuff and what you're doing. And that required more time Boring. than, than yeah. the task that you were going to train. And, and I, I, I'd never got in trouble for this, but I was a, I was a squad leader and a platoon sergeant at the time. And I can remember going out without any visual aids uh, and the only thing you would take is at the time I'm dating myself, an M60 machine gun, right? And, and then your accessory bag and your spare barrel. And we would do crew drill because I knew crew drill because I'd been an M60 machine gunner and I didn't need that on a butcher block. Um, but I would, I would do crew drill for four hours on a Thursday morning. And I'll tell you what, everybody in a platoon knew how to do crew drill. Everybody in a platoon could be a gunner and AG. Everybody could be an ammo bearer. Everybody could change a hot gun. Um, everybody could, could, could maneuver, fire and maneuver with the machine gun and they were smoked. They were tired and they learned how to do it. Um, again, that's, that's kind of the way we should be training, uh, the warriors we have in, in the military and not, not this other way. And again, for my own, my own passion. Now, this is the way we should be teaching kids. Absolutely. Uh, it, it shouldn't be the same thing. We, we know that it doesn't work. Um, yet there's so, so many people around the country that still kind of rely on, well, I told you that on one slide, uh, over, over a 54 minute period, two weeks ago, why don't you know the answer to this question? Well, it's because we haven't revisited the information time and time again. We haven't used it in some way. We haven't collaborated on an answer that required us to use that information, uh, or we haven't physically done something that reinforced it. Yeah. So all of those things kind of play into, I mean, again, my, my research was on active learning. So, uh, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't go into it that way. It just kind of happened, uh, which I think research happens a lot that way. You find something, I think you told me that you'll find something that'll, that'll kind of pique you and drive you into it. But, um, you're actually hitting on all senses. If you can hit on more than one sense to capture the individual's brain. So if you're like you had said, you know, it's feel uh, touch, smell, see, you know, you're trying to hit on as many senses as you can so that the individual retains it. Yeah. Why Why are Green Berets such good teachers? Why are we, I mean, worldwide, I'm tooting our horn a little bit, but why worldwide are we looked at as the best teachers in the military? Um, the model that we use in the Q course and, and in preparing for, for going down the range of teaching is C1, do one, teach one. So C1, you watch somebody doing a task. So it's visual. You hear somebody describing it. So it's auditory. You do it. So it's tactile or kinesthetic, right? So you're hitting these three different learning modalities, and then you have to teach one. So you have to then show that you know the steps by talking somebody else through it. Um, and, and by doing that, you're hitting three modalities. You're seeing it, you're hearing it, you're touching it. And then you have to restate the whole thing. So you're reinforcing your own learning one right after the other. I and mean, that's how we teach guys to give IVs. That's how we teach you know guys to run rifle ranges. That's how we teach basic trainees to do a claymore. I mean, they go back with practice claymores and basic training and they, they help each other practice the steps of emplacing that. So it works. I mean, it works for, you know, underachievers like me. So it should work for, you know, just about anyone. Mike was saying like, you're appealing to everybody's learning abilities. You know what I mean? Yep. Like, fortunately and unfortunately, you have to learn as well as everyone else does, but it really helps you grow as an individual. Like you said, you'd be more proficient at just going through the motions of, like you said, those steps. I mean, it's through like all of my mil medical training and all that, like that's exactly what they did. And you'd hope that's what they do. You know what I mean? Because these yep. people are supposed to be saving lives. So 
what you were describing in your educational uh, teachings, you were developing teams in these students as much as they were understanding history. So they were also understanding each other, how the different cultures and, you know, how people react. Some are going to be extroverts, some are going to be introverts because some individuals didn't want to actually show. They didn't, they didn't feel like they had any athletic ability. So they sat on the sideline, but then they realized that it wasn't really a physical exercise. They decided to jump in. And that, again, is fostering that teamwork within that classroom and a stronger bond between them. Yeah. And socially, kids want to be part of the group. So, you know, even though they may be apprehensive at first and, and a couple will sit off on the side, they, they don't want to feel left out when kids are having fun. So there's there's an aspect of, of engagement um, that that where kids, they just socially, I don't want to, what's the way to put it, um, they almost shamed out of it. Right. I mean, it, it's peer pressured. Right. So if, if, if you and I are, are both, you know, engaging in an activity and having a good time and somebody else sees it, they want to be part of that. They don't want to feel left out. So if there's a way to get, you know, I, and I think it's human nature, it's not just kids, people involved in yeah. something, then they'll, they'll, they'll try to collaboration brings that, that part of social engagement together. You're eliminating the power structure, you know, that they created themselves among yeah. their teenage culture, but you're eliminating it by giving them all different identities, essentially. Kat, so, you're speaking my language, like, man. Like now, said, now we're, we're talking about taking a power structure and, and those those hidden curriculums out of the classroom, right? Because I come in with, with a, you know, a, a certain level of, of this uh, expectation and, and, you know, authority figure and everything. And, and when you, when you remove that, and now it's just the activity that you're, you're kind of engaging with, there's no, there's no, um, there's no threat, right? So it, it's just a matter of, of, of them working together and having a good time. And, and the best, the best activities that I've run like that or that I've run across, um, and that have worked have done that. They somehow the teacher will set it up and then remove themselves from it. And the kids run the whole thing themselves and they get so much out of it. Yeah. Think about the leader. I mean, what you're describing right there, even in military leadership or civilian leadership, it's the same thing. I mean, what you just said of how you're going to lead the classroom, how the individuals felt like they're being a part of it. They don't feel like they're being led. They realize that they're actually participating. Yeah. I mean, if you, yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of good here. Definitely. Well, it's troop leading procedures. It's the same thing. If, if, a, if, a, if a leader at whatever level establishes the correct priorities, he, he uses the one third, two thirds rule to allow two thirds planning at a, at a subordinate level, he has given his intent. Uh, he, he, he's given, or he or she has, has given, you know, a, a mission statement and intent and an end state. And then, you know, subordinates can follow that to whatever end it may be. A teacher can do the same thing. Um, you can set the kids up to accomplish whatever task it is. You can give them an objective that they have to achieve that if they start fearing off whatever, they can always look back to that objective. This is all I've got to get out of this lesson today. Uh, and, and most of the time, you should be able to boil that down very simple, similar to uh, a mission intent and, you know, an objective for a, a mission troop leading procedures. I, I think uh, when you started describing all that, I thought, how, how in the hell is that any different than just basic leadership? And and I think we, we've kind of lost that within the military and within the private sector in a lot of cases because they don't understand those basic elements. You know, you have to engage people. You have to find ways to bring them into the fold. You have to find ways that inspire and motivate them. This is why guys with leadership experience, guys, men and women, cat, sorry, um, are, are it's fine. <laughs> it's why it's why they're so, I think, effective if they choose to go into this particular, you know, field when they get out of the military. 
uh, because one, you're giving almost, almost complete autonomy in what you're doing, how you're going to get, you know, to, to the, to the end result. And, and I think that, um, you know, we understand our language is different in the army with, with, uh, learning objectives than, than what education theory or what, what different districts use and different models of education use. But ultimately it's the same thing. You've got an, an objective for a mission or you've got a training objective and you've got an objective, a learning objective in a classroom that's generally tied to standards and your learning objective or your, your training objective in, in the military is generally tied back to some type of, of evaluating standard, whether it's a, you know, um, I don't know the, 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 the numerical series, seven, eight, seven, 10, seven, 20 for, for, you know, squad platoon and company before, but, but I know they've changed, but they're tied to those evaluation standards. So we understand that. And we understand that the way you get there has to touch auditory, visual, and tactile, uh, uh, kinesthetic. We've got to touch those three things for, for, to reach all the different types of learners. They don't tell us why we are doing it. You know, they just kind of make us do it. And that's that learning by doing, I don't have to know all the theory to know that, I've got 40 people in this organization that I'm teaching today and they all learn a little bit differently. That's the same as a classroom. So I think if, if people decide uh, to, to make this career transition into education um, and, and they can apply those same lessons, there's different vocabulary that goes along with it. And you'll learn a lot of different stuff and how to do it. Um, but generally you're learning that from people who have never done it the way we've done it. So if you relate back, like my story on Chicago Ridge, Right. I learned everything about teaching uh, training Green Berets and teaching students in the classroom on a piece of terrain here in Colorado in my own education on how to ski. So you can take that and apply it to a lot of different ways. You can apply it to, to different business models, I'm sure, too. But for oh, me, yeah. it just worked very well this way. Thank you for listening to our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and at Facebook by searching at Mentors, the number four MIL, and please subscribe to our podcast. It's free and it ensures you're the first to hear our latest podcast show. We have several options depending upon your device, and we're at iTunes, SoundCloud, at Stitcher, and at TuneIn Radio. Hey everyone, Robert here. I love supporting veteran-owned companies, and Mentors for Military recently partnered with Skeleton Optics to offer a 10% discount to our listeners. That's right, 10%. These aren't your regular run-of-the-mill sunglasses, by the way. The frames are handcrafted in Italy with Zeiss Vision lenses. Use the code mentors for mil or mentors the number 4 mil at SkeletonOptics.com, and you'll receive your 10% discount automatically at checkout. Hurry up and get on over there to support a veteran-owned company.